Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And Tracy, we have been traveling a lot lately. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been traveling a whole bunch. And because of that, I just started thinking, particularly when we were on our trip to Paris, which was booked uh, as a package... About how package travel started. Yeah. Um, because, like, I, I often found myself marveling at the people who managed our trips through defined destinations. We're just handling the needs of 50 people who all had differing desires and internal clocks and whatnot as we wandered around in a foreign country. And sometimes people got lost and they always managed to find them. And get, I was just, I marvel at the whole concept. So that made me start to think about how this whole thing began. And uh, as I dug, it did not take very long to find the person that most people point to and say, this is the person who started it. But I was surprised because the man most often referenced as the father of the modern travel industry was inspired not by some deep-seated yearn to go out and explore the world, but it was more uh, inspired by his support of the temperance movement and his deeply held religious beliefs. So today, we are talking about Thomas Cook, but we are also talking about his son, John Mason Cook. Uh, Modern travelers in the UK in particular are probably well acquainted with the Cook name. It's now the name of one of the largest travel agencies in the world if not the largest, Uh, but their family were really pioneers of this idea of a travel agency to manage tourist holidays and put together packages that could be sold for all of your needs to be attended to. And you just buy your one thing, and then it's taken care of. Yeah, it didn't start that way. That happened incrementally before they got to the buy your one thing idea, but it really, you do see the progression of how this concept started and how it it started to add on different pieces until it became package travel. Thomas Cook was born on November 22nd, 1808 in Derbyshire, England. His parents, John and Elizabeth Cook, were very poor, and John worked as a laborer and died when Thomas was just four years old. Elizabeth remarried to James Smithard not long after John's death. Thomas's formal education was rather brief. He attended school only until the age of 10. And at that point, he started working as a helper to an estate gardener. And he worked in that position for four years, at which point he became a cabinetry apprentice under his uncle, John Pegg. When young Thomas became an apprentice, he also switched religious denominations. Up until the age of 14, Thomas had attended a Methodist Sunday school, and that was intended to offer a little bit of a supplemental education since he had to go to work full-time to help the family. And that was a common pattern. Sunday schools in England during this time were intended to offer children a small amount of ongoing education after they were required to join the workforce. Yeah, very different, I think, from what we might think of as Sunday school today. Um, Not as much, I mean, certainly there was religious uh, study involved, but it was also literally like sort of a standard education that was getting uh, conveyed. But though he had been attending Methodist Sunday School for four years, at 14, Thomas started attending a Baptist Sunday School. John Pegg, his uh, new person that he was apprenticing under, was a Baptist, so that may have had some influence in the switch, but Thomas's mother also wanted her son to change churches. It appears that Thomas was very diligent in his studies at this new school, and he eventually started teaching there. He was eventually named its superintendent. 
He hadn't been baptized yet, though. That didn't happen until February of 1826 when he was 17. Yeah, that kind of ties into that idea that Sunday school is not the way we would think of Sunday school in, like, modern America, for example. It really was not quite the same deal. And I only know catechism, which is different than other religions, Sunday schools, so I'm sure I have a very um, different concept (laughs) of how the whole thing works. Uh, Cook's religious devotion eventually supplanted his work in cabinetry. After five years as his uncle's apprentice, he left that job behind to become a missionary. And his new job consisted of traveling from town to town in rural England. In each town, he would distribute literature, give sermons, and set up a Sunday school there. He got paid 36 pounds annually for the job, and that amount was throttled back as he started to receive aid from the people that he ministered to. While traveling with his work, the 20-year-old cook met a young woman named Marianne Mason, another Sunday school teacher who was a year older than Thomas. Thomas and Marianne were sweethearts for four years before they got married on March 2nd, 1833. That was another thing that made me chuckle in some of the uh, biographical write-ups of him. People will talk about what a long courtship that was, whereas, again, in the modern era, not so much. Uh, not only did Thomas's bachelor status change to that of husband in 1833, he also changed jobs. He returned to carpentry. His job as a missionary had ended because the church could no longer fund his salary, so he moved with Marianne to Market Harbor and opened up a shop. On January 13, 1834, they welcomed a son, John Mason Cook. In 1835, they had another child named Henry, but the second son died while still a baby. They didn't have any more children until the mid-1840s when their daughter Annie was born. In 1836, the Cooks took a strong stand for temperance. They felt that liquor was causing all manner of social problems. This was a, a pretty popularly circulated idea at the time, and they decided that they wanted to lead by example in their own lives. So they both signed a pledge of temperance, and they also vowed that no one who worked for them would have access to alcohol while on their property. But Thomas was not content to do just that. He started really throwing his time and his efforts into promoting temperance in the latter half of the 1830s. Cook reached back to his preaching days at this time, He started to preach the importance of temperance and the dangers of alcohol. He wrote and distributed pamphlets with these same messages. He also started setting up recreational events that were alcohol-free. They were social gatherings called rational recreation, where the activities were wholesome and the hardest liquid served was ginger beer. He also founded a periodical called the Children's Temperance Magazine in 1840. And it was Cook's temperance efforts and his desire to put together activities that would offer fun and socializing without alcohol that led him to start setting up travel activities. In June of 1841, while he was walking to a temperance meeting in Leicester near his home, he had a bolt of inspiration. He realized that developments in transportation that had been part of the Industrial Revolution, and in particular, railroads, could be used to spread the word about temperance farther than ever before. He was walking to a meeting in Leicester when he had this idea. And when he got there, Cook outlined his plan to the attendees. He pitched the plan that they would hire a train specifically to get their members to another meeting farther away the next month. Everybody thought this was a great idea, so he reached out to the Midland Railway to try to make the arrangements. And they were completely open to it. So on July 5th of 1841, just a month after he had his idea, Thomas led a group of 500 members of the temperance movement on a trip. 
It was a train ride from Leicester to Loughborough to attend a meeting and a lecture there. And each attendee paid a shilling for the trip that was arranged by Cook. And this trip went very, very smoothly, and its success led Cook to plan for more. I just want to say 500 people is a lot of people. (laughs) That is a lot of people. (laughs) I mentioned at the top of the show how I marveled at managing 50 people on a trip. 500 seems bananas. (laughs) To bolster the whole enterprise, Cook wanted to be in a bigger city to have greater access to travel resources. So to that end, he and his family moved to Leicester. The temperance and Baptist community there was much larger, and he was also able to expand his business with an eye to using these businesses to promote temperance. He started printing temperance literature in his own print shop, and he also opened a bookstore to sell that literature in. He also printed and sold guidebooks and almanacs through this system. And next, he opened two temperance hotels. The first in Derby was managed by his mother Elizabeth, and his wife Marianne managed the second, which was in Leicester. Coming up, we'll talk about how Thomas transitioned from wrangling groups of temperance supporters to managing travel as a business. But first, we'll pause for a sponsor break. Thomas Cook had, since that first rail trip from Leicester to Loughborough in 1841, continued to arrange trips for temperance supporters to attend meetings and share their ideology throughout England. But in 1845, he decided to actually make a business out of it, running tours for profit. He had a really good network of contacts within the railways at this point, and he had already made a name for himself as an efficient and trustworthy organizer of group excursions. So he was starting this enterprise from a very strong position. Cook's first for-profit itinerary went to Liverpool with starting points for travelers at Leicester, Derby, and Nottingham. This included excursions to Carnarvon and a hike up Mount Snowdon. He was conscious of the fact that even on his previous temperance-oriented trips, for a lot of the people traveling, it was a really new experience. And to that end, he produced a handbook for the 350 people on this Liverpool tour, offering them both practical advice and encouragement to abstain from drink while enjoying the journey. This handbook was the first of many. He assembled them for all of his tours after this point. First-class tickets cost 15 shillings, and second-class was 10 shillings. Travelers could also opt in to a steamer cruise to North Wales for an additional fee. The Liverpool tour was a far more ambitious project than any of Thomas Cook's temperance trips had been. But it went well. So well that Cook started to set his sights on expanding to new destinations. And he decided, after he had done some of these Liverpool trips, that the next excursion he wanted to offer would go to Scotland. The Scotland tour was scheduled for the summer of 1846, and it was Thomas Cook's first real flop since he started planning group travel. The several hundred people who had booked had been told that they would be able to disembark from the train they were on when it made stops along the way to the coast. And there they were going to board a steamer to Scotland. But it turned out that train passengers were not allowed to get off and on at stops. The train also didn't have bathrooms, and it didn't offer food service. So by the time the group got to the coast, they were already miserable. (laughs) The next leg of the trip was aboard the steamer Ardrossan, which was also a problem. Cook had booked more people than there were cabins. There appears to have been a miscommunication between him and the steamer. Uh, So some of the group had to hang out on the deck, and they got drenched in a storm that came along while they made this crossing. But once the group arrived in Scotland, they were warmly welcomed with marching bands and other fanfare, and from that point, it seems to have gone okay. 
Reviews of this tour were unsurprisingly unkind. Part of the criticism was Thomas Cook's unrelenting devotion to temperance, which he preached to all his tour groups. This summer of problems caused a temporary halt to Cook's travel business. He was also seeing new competitors emerge in the publishing market, some of whom were printing books and pamphlets on temperance as well. Yeah, so he had he had kind of planned on this this travel thing going well, and it started well and then wasn't, and then this other area of the market that he had cornered was suddenly having some competitors, and he just kind of needed to regroup. So he slowly rebuilt his business over the next couple of years. And in 1848, he was once again up and running with his tours, publishing, and his temperance hotels. For the next couple of years after that, he launched successful tours to Scotland and Ireland. And then a new opportunity presented itself to Cook in the form of the Great Exposition of 1851, which has made numerous appearances on the podcast over the years. Cook booked travel arrangements for more than 150,000 people to go to the Great Exposition. To bolster his travel business, he also started publishing the periodical-slash-travel catalog Cook's Exhibition Herald, an excursion advertiser. This effort to create exposition tours was, incidentally, made at the urging of previous podcast subject and Crystal Palace architect Sir Joseph Paxton, who hoped that Cook would make it possible for the workers outside of London to see the hall— Paxton remained a supporter of Cook's work long after the exposition, and Cook's exhibition Herald was later published under the name Cook's Excursionist. And after the Great Expo, Thomas Cook built his offerings up to meet new levels of demand because he had become very well known while planning all of those trips. He started offering an assortment of trips that travelers could choose from throughout England, Ireland, Wales, and Scotland. These were not, we should note, all-inclusive tours. Cook's agency booked travel and outlined itineraries and provided guidebooks, but tourists were responsible for booking their own lodging and getting their own food. And as his travel business grew, Thomas Cook ceased operation of his printing efforts so that he could focus more on tourism. He still printed guidebooks, but he wasn't running his own print shop. After a decade of growth and expansion within his established roots, Cook expanded his offerings to a wider range of destinations on the European continent. This was in part because his tours in Scotland ran into a problem, which is that the rail companies in Scotland stopped offering him discounted group rates for the trains. And so to expand into this new phase of business, Cook did two things. First, he opened another office in London. Similar to the reasons that he moved to Leicester, this shift to London offered greater resources and more access to a wider clientele. And second, he started creating more comprehensive bookings, ones that did include lodging and meals, as well as railroad travel and channel crossings. In 1855, Thomas Cook mounted his first European continental tour to coincide with another exposition, this time the Exposition Universelle in Paris. This trip hit a lot of other spots before landing at the expo, though. From England, the group traveled to Antwerp, Brussels, Cologne, Heidelberg, and Strasbourg before finishing in Paris. In addition to booking the trip as a comprehensive package, he also offered a currency exchange service to his travelers. Yeah, at this point, he was offering literally, like, full-service travel. By the fall of 1863, Cook had booked travel to Switzerland for an estimated 500 tourists and to France for about 2,000. The rapid growth of his expanded offerings led to Cook being nicknamed the Napoleon of Excursions. And before long, a Cook's tour became synonymous with guided tourist experiences. In 1865, the business shifted once again, this time because Cook's son, John Mason Cook, started working for the firm full-time. 
Over the next six years, John helped his father expand the company significantly so that by 1871, there were three offices for the firm in England, each with a full staff. John was made partner that year, and the firm became Thomas Cook & Son. John had been highly instrumental in getting Cook's company into booking travel across the Atlantic, and he had streamlined the way the business ran to make everything more efficient. But even so, John had been really reluctant to step into the role of partner. After the popularity of Thomas Cook & Sons offering for travel to France and Switzerland, the firm started offering tours to Italy as well. Uh, As we mentioned, John helped get it across the Atlantic, so a United States itinerary was soon made available. And then they offered trips to Egypt and Israel. And as Cook's travel agency entered the 1870s, he was, as always, thinking bigger in terms of where he could go. The advertisements for the company at this point read, A Cook's Ticket Brings the World to You. And Thomas Cook seemed really intent on delivering on that promise. It was this attitude that led him to offer the first-ever round-the-world tourist itinerary. It was ambitious, but Cook was driven by his religious faith just as much as any business ambition. He wanted to continue to share his religious views and show people the world simultaneously, believing that in doing so, he would help promote global peace. To that end, he traveled along with his clients on the company's first round-the-world excursion, which ran from 1872 to 1873. It took 222 days, and his being there was possible in part because he had John to manage the offices back home. But despite trusting John to handle a lot of the business, Thomas and his son had problems. And we are going to get into that after we take a break and hear from one of the sponsors that keeps Stuff You Missed in History class going. Thomas and John Cook did not always agree on how their business should run, even though John was made a partner. Uh, And this ultimately caused serious problems. There, I read some historians that suggested that, like, the two of them had such different approaches that they would have been terribly complementary if it weren't for the fact that they were continuously butting heads. Uh, (laughs) So while Thomas was shepherding that first world tour, for example, John settled the firm's main offices into a new, fancier, and more expensive location. When Thomas returned, the travel agency started a business partnership with an American partner, and that turned disastrous. The idea was that combining their efforts with a business interest on the other side of the Atlantic was going to bolster travel bookings from North America to Europe and vice versa. But that did not work out. Over the next several years, Thomas and John were increasingly at odds, and the U.S. partnership fell apart, which added even more strain to the relationship. Even as they successfully moved on to new ventures, including offering cruises, they didn't seem to celebrate as much as they seemed to argue. And the main issue between them was that they just felt completely differently, as I said, about how their business should run. Thomas had always dreamed big in terms of trips, but he wasn't especially concerned with turning huge profits as long as they were making some profit. He basically seemed to just want enough to provide for his family and then donate pretty generously to the various charities that he supported. John, on the other hand, envisioned much grander things. He really believed that they could be much more financially lucrative, and he thought that his father's approach to business was too soft and inefficient and that his father was a little bit of a Billy Dreamer. Uh, Additionally, John wanted Thomas to keep his religious and temperance views out of their tours and maintain those interests as personal matters, not business. 
this strife between Thomas and John wasn't exactly new. It had basically been there ever since John was young. There was a time as a very young man just out of school when John had worked in Thomas's print shop and had worked on some of the tours, but the two of them had butted heads so often that John left to work for a railway company. Even when John returned to work for his father in 1865, it had been because he had a wife and a child to support, not because the two of them actually wanted to work together. Things eventually came to a head in 1878, and father and son had a massive fight. The end result, although we don't have details on how exactly this decision was reached, was that Thomas removed himself from the business entirely. He moved full-time back to Leicester, where he had built a large house, and he just let John run things as he wished. But their relationship was damaged beyond repair. As the firm was transitioning in leadership from father to son, John established a new department at the firm, Foreign Banking and Money Exchange. And then through this division, the company started issuing credit notes for travelers, which evolved into traveler's checks. This proved to be a very lucrative enterprise that makes traveler's checks older than I imagined. (laughs) Yeah, uh, I think they were first calling them circular checks. Uh, And yeah, they eventually set this up. Again, John, I mean, was very smart about business, and his father was very smart about putting together compelling tours. And if they could just have lived in harmony, they probably could have done even more amazing things than they did. John also started selecting new destinations for the firm, including India, New Zealand, and Australia. The New Zealand and Australian tours made plenty of money. India, not so much. Uh, John also negotiated government contracts for Thomas Cook and Son. So when England sent a force to relieve Major General Charles George Gordon, who had become embroiled in a conflict with the Mahdi of Sudan in the city of Khartoum against the government's wishes, that trip was managed by Thomas Cook and Son. Incidentally, that relief effort uh, arrived too late. Gordon's stronghold had fallen and he had already been killed. That is a whole whole other potential podcast episode. Under John Mason Cook, the firm also transported Indian royalty to London to celebrate the Queen's two jubilees. And what seemed initially like a move his father would have made, John also assisted in the transport of Muslim pilgrims to Mecca. Eventually, though, even though this was part of a mission initialized by the British government's India office, Cook's fares were too high. That deal ended. Thomas and his wife, Marianne, lived in his retirement, during which he was getting a pension from his son with their daughter, Annie, who had never married. And two years after they moved into the house that was called Thorncroft, that was that large house that Thomas had built in Leicester, there was a tragic loss when Annie died in her bathtub. The gas fumes from a new heater were determined to have been the cause. And Thomas's wife, Marianne, died four years later in 1884. Thomas Cook continued his life quietly outside of the company, He continued to travel and to work with the church and the temperance movement. He did eventually lose his sight. In 1891, Thomas Cook and Son celebrated the company's Silver Jubilee. Thomas did not attend, although it is unknown whether that was his choice, perhaps because his health was not great or because his son did not want him there. The firm celebrated their immense success without their founder. At that point, the company had 84 offices and more than 2,500 employees. And the next in line to run things were John's three sons. Although John continued to head things up for a while, and he even expanded the company once again to include a fleet of steamers that offered Nile River cruises. John did make a move that seemed a little bit more like something his father would have done when he paid for a hospital to be built in Egypt. The year after the company's celebration, Thomas died. That was on July 18, 1892. He had had a stroke. 
He was buried in Leicester on July 22nd. His obituary in the Times referred to him and John as the Julius and Augustus Caesar of travel. Thomas's will was at odds with his existing worth at the time of his death. His estate was worth roughly 2,500 pounds, but the amount that he bequeathed in his will was 4,225 pounds, which has left some historians puzzling over what exactly happened to the great fortune that he had made. And while he was very generous throughout his life, believing that it was his duty as a religious man to help others in need, for example, he had arranged everything from soup kitchens to the building of cottages for the poor over the years, uh, there is still a lot of puzzling over how exactly he ended up with so little. John didn't even break stride in terms of business after his father died. He had become very much a social climber, and whenever any royalty booked travel with the firm, he personally escorted them during their journey. When the first modern Olympic Games took place in Athens in 1896, John made sure that the Cook firm was their travel partner. In 1898, while escorting Kaiser Wilhelm II on a trip to the Holy Land, John Cook became ill, most likely with dysentery. And though John returned home, he continued to be unwell for several months, leading up to his death on March 6, 1899. John's sons Frank, Ernest, and Bert took over the travel agency and its many offices, and the company continued to flourish. They kept printing The Excursionist, although the name was changed to Traveler's Gazette, and in 1919, they became the first UK travel agent to offer air bookings. Thomas Cook's grandson sold the business in 1928 to a Belgian firm for 3.5 million pounds. And the firm that Cook started still exists under the name Thomas Cook, although in recent times, it has had some struggles. Uh, in May of this year, which is 2019, The Guardian reported that the company lost 1.5 billion euros due to Brexit uncertainty. People were canceling trips because they didn't know what was going to happen next. And then a few weeks later, reports hit the news that Fosun International, that's the Chinese conglomerate that owns Club Med, was interested in purchasing the company, and the company was talking with them. Still, a June 18th article in Travel Weekly announced plans for the Thomas Cook Company to open two new hotels in Egypt. And the day before we recorded this, but a little while before you will hear it, they announced their move of their digital marketing office to Manchester from London and new efforts to market their airline division. So regardless of what happens next to the company that bears his name, it was really Thomas Cook that set the stage for the industry of tourism as we know it today. Whenever he selected a destination as an offering, it became a standard vacation spot for his clients. And this way, he planted the seeds of this industry, which now drives the economies of many countries and many individual places within countries. Yeah, it's really fascinating to think about. Like, he would basically say, like, I think we should start going to Switzerland, and people would start going to Switzerland, and then towns that he went to in Switzerland would be like, we have a booming tourist economy. We should court tourism. And, like, that cycle would happen over and over and over. Uh, and in many ways, he really ended up kind of uh, shifting the way that that various areas managed their their economics because that, again, tourism is a big business. Um, do you want to hear about a fun card? I sure do. It's very, very cute. Uh, it is from our listener, Shelby, and Shelby has the most spectacular penmanship. Uh, she writes, Dear Holly and Tracy, I've listened to Stuff You Missed in History class for years, even before y'all were the hosts. I have always loved history, and I have learned so much from the podcast. I've wanted to write in and send you something for a long time, but only recently finally found something I thought you might like. It's stickers of cats in space. <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't have a cat, but I know y'all are big fans of felines. Hope you like them. Thanks for all your hard work uh, informing me and many others throughout the years. She writes, P.S. There are a couple of non-feline space stickers, but they also still reminded me of y'all. And then P.P.S. Uh, I don't have any pets currently, but I do love drawing them, and I do commissions occasionally. Uh, you can check out her Instagram, which is at artfulvice. Uh, she does some really, really beautiful work. And these cat stickers are adorable, and it really is sort of the intersection of so many things that delight me that um, I could not be more enthused. I love them. Yay. It's so sweet of her to think of us. Thank you so much, Shelby. Uh, I love the stickers. Thank I'll you. share them with Tracy when she comes in a couple weeks, uh, and we will get them all sorted out. Uh, if you would like to write to us, you should do that. You can do it at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also find us on social media as Missed in History pretty much everywhere. Mistinhistory.com is also where to go if you want to visit us online, and there you will find an archive of every episode that has ever existed. Uh, if you would like to subscribe to the podcast, we would like you to subscribe to the podcast. You can do that on the iHeartRadio app, at Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 